Good morning. My name is Stan Gale, and I am um, filling in uh, this morning uh, for Pastor Max as he is on sabbatical, and it's a privilege to be able to minister God's Word to you. Our text this morning is from James 2, verses 8 through 13. Let's give ear to the reading of God's Word. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Since the reading of the very word of the living God, the title of this morning's message is The Law of Love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, draw near to us as we draw near to you to sit under the preaching of your word. May your spirit not only inform us but may he transform us into the image of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Oxymoron sounds like an insult, but actually it's a combination of words that seem contradictory. For examples might be uh, jumbo shrimp, or that's a definite possibility. Or it's the only choice. Or I read true fiction. Contradictory words. Well, this, the title of this morning's sermon might seem like an oxymoron to you. The law of love. Uh, law and love can seem contradictory at odds with each other. You know, we might think of the law as something that is uh, restrictive and sterile, rigid, But love is something that's more warm and nurturing and flexible. And they seem at odds with each other. You don't hear, uh, you hear a lot of songs about love, but you don't hear a lot of songs about law. You know, like all you need is law. (laughs) Now law is something that we think you impose. Love is something that you express. Or as a friend of mine uh, she and I were having a discussion and she was under the notion that the Old Testament had to do with law. The New Testament had to do with love. And so these things were at odds and they were like mutually exclusive. But in the Bible, there is no tension between law and love. In Matthew 22, a religious leader approached Jesus and asked him, Teacher, 
What is the greatest commandment of the law? And here's how Jesus answered him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Isn't it interesting that our Lord Jesus summarized law in terms of love? And on top of that, the two commandments that Jesus mentions, to love God and love neighbor, these were not new to the New Testament. They're both found in the Old Testament. The law to love the, the Lord our God with the entirety of our being is in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, etc. And that follows in Deuteronomy 6 on the heels of Deuteronomy 5, which is what? The giving of the Ten Commandments. So the giving of the Ten Commandments, the call to love our God with the entirety of our being. And then we read in, in Deuteronomy 6, right after this Shema, saying, these words that I command you today are to be on your heart. It's not what we think of law, is it? We think of the law as kind of on our back, right? But it's to be on our heart. Uh, the second commandment, the second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's also found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Leviticus, and it's part of a rather extended section of what it means uh, or, what, or how we are to treat other people. And it, it sums up with love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, in this letter to James, from James, James has just addressed the sin of partiality. People, those that James identifies as beloved brothers, they were discriminating on the basis of status. And that's something that is completely foreign, antagonistic to the Christian faith. And this partiality was illustrative of a greater principle. And that principle has to do with love. And that's what James explains to us this morning. He explains the law of love under two headings. First is this. The law of love is called the royal law. The royal law. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So by the royal law, James is speaking of what Jesus described as the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And James, in talking about this law of love, he, he speaks of it in two ways. One, he calls it a law. Secondly, he identifies and he qualifies it as a royal law. So it's a law and it is a royal law. All right, so it's a law. Why didn't he just call it the commandment, a commandment? Why does he call it a law? Well, it is a commandment in the sense that it makes demands of us. It's something that is commanded and that is to be obeyed. 
But the law seems to suggest that it is a statute that has been enacted. It is part of a governmental legislation. On the other hand, calling it a law suggests that there is a penalty for breaking the law. And that's exactly what James emphasizes in this passage. Verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James calls it a law. Then he says this is a royal law. Now when you think of royal, you know, what do you think of? I, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week ago or so, I watched Wimbledon, some of the matches. And it's a fun experience. I'd like to make it there someday. But in Wimbledon, on center court, Wimbledon takes place in England. And at center court in Wimbledon, one of the things they have at Wimbledon is a royal box. And royal box is where the, the, I don't know, the queen has been there for many years, but royalty, British royalty, and their, gate, and their guests are able to, to sit there. That's what royal does. When we think of royal, we think of monarchy. Now, in terms of the Christian faith, what does royal make you think of? What, what monarchy is in view? Well, it's the one that James has told us about. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And clearly, that's his point of reference here. Uh, last week, you, uh, in, in passage, he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So that's James' framework. This point of reference is the kingdom of God. And so when we hear royal law, our mind goes to the kingdom of God and to the king who reigns over that kingdom. So the royal law is kingdom legislation. The Apostle Paul, when he describes what it meant for us to become Christians, he speaks of it in terms of kingdom transference requiring kingdom allegiance. If you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it speaks to God coming to you just like we sang in And Can It Be. I was in darkness and my dungeon filled with light. I rose, went forth. Paul says this in Colossians 1. He says, um, he describes this. He says, he, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's describing, what's happened in our lives. But here's the prayer. Because of that reality of what God has done in our life, because of that reality for us now who know Jesus Christ, Here's Paul's prayer. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as 
to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Just what we've seen in James. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see what Paul saying? He says, I, I pray that you would live in a manner keeping with your deliverance from the kingdom of darkness that held you in bondage, in bondage to sin. And that you would live in a manner pleasing to the God who has rescued you, delivered you from that kingdom. Because our lives are to submit to our King and serve our God in any situation. Remember, we saw not, not long ago in James 1, he said that uh, don't be angry. Be slow to anger is what he said. And you want to make sure of this because to ask yourself this question in a situation of anger, the way you're handling anger, does your anger accomplish the righteousness of God? Does your, does your handling of anger, is it concerned for what God requires or for yourself? You see, that's a kingdom question, isn't it? What does God require of us? There's something else we want to see here. Notice that James, in verse 8, he doesn't just talk about keeping the royal law. How does he put it? He says, if you really fulfill the royal law. The word fulfill carries a sense of purpose. It's kind of purpose-driven. It pursues. It sets its face on a goal. On a goal. And what is God's goal for us as new creatures in Christ? Here's what our Lord Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, so Jesus calls this command to love a new commandment. How, how is it new when we find it in the Old Testament already published it's like another mox an oxymoron you know old news how is it new well that could be a sermon in itself couldn't it but i think at the very minimum we could say it's new in this way it's new in that a face is brought to it it's new in that we see the extent and the depth and the breadth and the width of this love in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we are to love others as Christ loved us. In other words, in Christ, this commandment to love one another has come to full bloom and a bloom that will never lose its luster, will never wilt, will never fade. 
I mentioned that the commandment to uh, love one another is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus. It's part of a more extended section, but even the verse where that uh, commandment is found in the Old Testament is longer, gives us a context for what God has in mind. In Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right, so there's a contrast made, isn't there? What is that contrast? It's between self-centered love and God-serving love. Self-centered love and God-serving love. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. Well, we don't bear grudges against ourselves, do we? Now, get me for that kind of thing. Rather, we are told to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And isn't that the love that's been demonstrated for us by our God? Romans 5, God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right, what does the law of love look like? In the Scriptures, love is never just nice, warm, fuzzy thoughts or mere sentimentalism. In fact, James, in, uh, in the section next week, he, sa- he says that uh, if, you, if your brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and if you go to say, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things to meet their need, you haven't loved them. You see, you can't just give a warm wish. Love in Scripture is boots on the ground. It is never theoretically defined. It is always operationally defined. You know, what's the, uh, the love chapter of the Bible? 1 Corinthians 13, right? How, how is love defined there? Some sort of theo- theoretical definition? No, there's a job description, isn't there, to love? Love is, are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your spouse? Are you loving one another? Well, are you being patient? Are you being kind? Are you finding yourself easily angered? Are you keeping a record of wrongs? Are you insisting on your own way? You see, that's how love, you know, even love is a summary of the law. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Love in the Bible is operationally defined. And when we look at how God loves, and we're to love as God has loved us, what do we see? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Christ loved the church, that's us, right? And gave himself for her. You see what love looks like? It is sacrificial 
It is substantial. And in Christ's case, it is substitutionary. Here's a description of love as a charter for Christ's church. And if Jesus is concerned that others are going to see this love, if they're going to see us living out this law of love under his lordship so that people will look at us and see Christ in us, what's that going to look like? Again, it's practical. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Put on then as God's chosen ones. This is Colossians 3. Holy and beloved. Here's what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Think how different would be our treatment of others. Think how different would be the words that we use if we were looking in our lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our King, to fulfill the royal law of love, treating others the way that we would want them to treat us. That's one of the reasons that the sin of partiality is so grievous, because we would not want to be treated that way. And to show partiality uh, is sinning against the very heart of the gospel, which Jesus called not just what Jesus called the gospel of the kingdom. All right, that's one aspect. Uh, there's one other aspect, the law of love that James wants us to see. So the law of love is called the royal law. Secondly, the law of love, the, the law of love is a law of liberty. The law of love is a law of liberty. Seems like we've got another one of those oxymorons, right? The law of liberty, we think, the law is anti-liberty. How do these things fit together? Yeah, that's just how James characterizes this law to this royal law as a law of liberty. Let's um, look at verse 10. I'll read 10 through 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For you have said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. If you do not if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment without mercy is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over, over judgment. Now, law of liberty, that should sound familiar. Because it's an expression we already came across in chapter 1, in verse 25. And there we used a law of liberty. We gave this illustration, you know, a train on its tracks. When is a train freest? When it's, when it's most liberated? When it's bounding across the countryside? Or when it's on the tracks for which it was designed to run? But here, it seems that James is giving us a bit of a mixed message. 
Because on the one hand, he talks about liberty. And we know what liberty is. We know freedom, uh, lack of restriction, kind of stuff like that. But then he talks about uh, being a transgressor of the law. He says it two times, verses 9 and 11. And then he uses words like accountability and judgment. So how can you transgress something when you're, it's a law of liberty? How do these two fit together? And by transgressor, when he speaks of that, actually the, the word, the original word could be, could be translated lawbreaker. So in what way is the law of love a law of liberty? Well, to help us to get a handle on this, James gives us three reasons. And if you notice, if you have your Bibles open, you notice that these three reasons are helpfully identified with a single word, each one with a single word. Verse 10, 4, whoever keeps. Verse um, 11, 4, he who said. And verse 13, 4, judgment. See, each of those words, those, this is what you're to do for, in other words, this is the reason. And so what James does is he props up what he is saying, helping us understand it as he lays out three reasons. First, the law of liberty does not allow for selective obedience. The law of liberty does not allow for selective obedience. Verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. And so what, what our God is saying to us through his servant James is this. We can't decide to love some and not love others. The law of God is comprehensive. When you look at the scope in Scripture, we're called to love God. We're called to love neighbor. We're called to love the brethren. We're called to love one another. We're even called to love our enemies. We are to love those who are like us, and we are called to love those who are unlike us. That's where the sin of partiality comes in. But James also reminds us of something else here, that if we violate one aspect of the law, one stroke of the law, we are guilty of breaking the whole thing. Why? Because that renders us law breakers. What does that remind you of? It reminds us of our desperate need for Jesus, who never sinned, never broke the law, kept it perfectly, thought, word, and deed, sins of commission, sins of omission. He never sinned once. And we can't do that. Because we look at the law and we recognize that we are lawbreakers and reminds us that we need a Savior. And the good news is what? God has provided that Savior in Jesus. It also reminds us, as we uh, say the law does not allow for selective obedience, it reminds us that we cannot excuse sin in our lives. Maybe you find yourself doing this. You say, we sin and we excuse it, saying, hey, no one's perfect. 
or I'm only human. We cannot, remember James, he gave us a a mirror to hold up in God's law. And he says that when you hold, when that mirror of God's word is held up to you and you look at yourself in it and you see the blemishes, you see the stains, you see the dirt and the smudges, you cannot be unconcerned with one point while being concerned about another. We cannot indulge in selective obedience. We must be hearers and doers, not walking away forgetting whatever God shows us. All right, secondly, the law of liberty is not an impersonal statute. The law of liberty is not an impersonal statute. Verses 11, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. See, James um, lists some commandments here. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, but you notice that his focus is not on the law. What's his focus on? He who said. In other words, the focus is not on the law. He wants our focus not to be on the law but on the law giver, the one who speaks his law. Because the law reflects the character of the law giver. That's why we can't pick and choose, pick and choose what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. Because we, God's people, saints of the Lord, are called to be holy as Our Heavenly Father is holy. Or as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So our obedience, this law of liberty, is not merely to keep the law. It's to honor our God. Or as Paul prayed, we're to please Him. We live our lives to please Him. And we know that this law reflects his character. And so we want to honor him in our lives. Augustine, um, Bishop of Hippo, I think it was in the 4th century, he put it this way. Love God and do what you will. Love God and do what you will. You see the genius of that? The point is that if you truly love God, then you're going to do what He wants. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, and therefore all died, and He died for all so that we who live might no, not longer, might no longer live for themselves, ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. See, in keeping the law for us as Christians, it's not impersonal. It is deeply personal because it's an expression of love for him who first loved us. Well, there's one other for. One other reason 
that James gives to help us understand something of what he's saying here. And the third is this. Obedience to the law of liberty is a symptom of saving faith. Obedience to the law of liberty is a symptom of saving faith. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, our Lord Jesus taught this on several occasions. He taught us the importance of showing mercy, saying that you who have been shown mercy, you are to show mercy. One of the practical ways we do that is through forgiveness. You who have been forgiven are to forgive others. You who have been shown mercy in the sense that uh, your sin is not counted against you, that you are not getting what you deserve, and that's mercy, you are to extend that to others, just as has been extended to you. Also, with forgiveness, not only are you to extend mercy, you are to extend grace. Mercy does not treat us as our sins deserve. Grace gives us what we do not deserve. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes himself coming in glory. And coming in glory, he ascends the throne. The throne is the throne of judgment. And all the nations are gathered before him around this throne. And Jesus, from that throne, my watch is telling me, you're t- preaching too long. Oh, oh, <clears throat> All the nations are gathered, and Jesus divides the sheep and the goats. And he will pronounce judgments, judgment not on the basis of a mere profession of faith, but on the basis of expressed faith, an expression of faith. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew 25, Jesus says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, he's speaking to those who showed mercy, who fulfilled the law of love. Now remember, not that we're saved by works. In fact, Jesus here didn't say that you're you're saved because you did these things. He addressed these people saying, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's wrap things up. 
Some of you may be familiar with a cartoon, The Far Side. It hasn't been published for a long time. Uh, it was what, uh, 1979 through uh, 1994, something like that, 95. Uh, it was penned, drawn by Gary Larson. And what Gary Larson would do in The Far Side, often he would, drew, he would draw visual oxymorons. And one of those cartoons explained where boneless chicken comes from. And he, what he drew was a boneless chicken ranch where you've got these chickens that are flopped all, all over the ground because they don't have skeletons to support them. Well, this morning, James has reminded us that biblical love, the love required for us as ones belonging to the kingdom of God, is not some sort of spineless sentimentalism. Biblical love is supported by the structure of God's law and is illustrated by our Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Such love comes from the God who first loved us and is part of the DNA of saving faith. James would say amen to Paul's statement in Galatians. And with this, I close. What matters, what matters is faith working itself out through love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us love's sweet lesson to obey. May your love be perfected in us to the glory of your name and the blessing of others. For Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.